hello and welcome to Change My Mind, the podcast where we ask people about a time they've changed their mind on an issue and why. I'm Ali Goldsworthy. I'm founder and chief exec of the Depolarization Project based out at Stanford in California. And I'm really lucky to have two awesome co-hosts. First up, Laura Osborne, who is Director of Campaigns and Communications at London First. Hi, Laura. Hi, great to be back. We've had a little bit of a break, but we've got a great guest today. So yeah, really exciting discussion ahead. And also our resident behavioural insight expert, Alex Chesterfield. Hi, Alex. Hi, Ali. I'm massively excited to be all back together again. It seems like ages since we've recorded the last one and we have got an outstanding uh, guest today. So really excited. We should go on to talking about our first guest, who I know that we all know, but Alex, you know her particularly well. Do you want to introduce her? I would love to. Sonia Soda is Chief Leader Writer and Columnist at The Observer and Deputy Opinion Editor at The Guardian. She's also a trustee of the Philanthropic Foundation, the Trust for London, and of the education charity Ambition School Leadership. Previously, she was Head of Public Services and Consumer Rights at the Consumer Champion Witch, and before that, a Senior Policy Advisor to Labour MP Ed Miliband. So, First question, Sonia, it goes straight into your role as someone uh, very much at the heart of the media. Now, previous guests like Joe Swinson have highlighted the role of the media in making it really costly for them to change their minds in public. Um, so they've they've drawn attention to the fact that it can make leaders seem very weak or flip-floppy in the eyes of the electorate. What's your uh, view on this? So I think... It is really difficult for politicians uh, to sort of publicly change their mind. Um, I think that's part a culture that's kind of, well, certainly the media contributes to that culture, because I think as soon as somebody does a U-turn, um, it's seen as a kind of universally bad thing across the media. You've got, you know, journalists waiting to report what happens in Westminster and someone changing their mind on something or admitting that perhaps something isn't quite the best idea um, is, is seen as a sign of weakness. So and usually, you know, a politician backs down when something goes really wrong. So when you think about, for example, the pasty tax, quite an infamous um, example from one of George Osborne's budgets, where the Treasury civil servants had pushed a tax on, I think it was hot goods sold in like takeaway shops. Previous politicians had always kind of resisted when civil servants had put the George Osborne's uh, team didn't. It was incredibly unpopular and George Osborne backed down, but it was it was presented as a big U-turn. So I think the media does absolutely contribute to that culture. Yeah. And has it always been like this? It's certainly been like this as, as long as I've worked in politics and the media, which has been sort of like the last 15 years or so. I think it's probably got, if, if anything, it's got a bit worse because the debate has got more polarised since the European referendum. But it certainly has always been the case, I think, that it's very difficult for politicians to change their minds. And it's quite a weird thing, really, because, you know, in normal life, I think, it can be a sign of sort of strength and great character. Someone admits they're wrong, perhaps as a result of new experiences or learning something new and, you know, says that they've changed their mind. It's not universally seen as a sign of weakness, but in our politics, I think it absolutely is. We expect our politicians to sort of have a line of thinking, to stick to it. And if they don't, um, they're weak. For some politicians, they have talked about the cost of doing that and that they rarely get any reward for changing their minds 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's probably related to the lack of trust in politicians in general in society, I suppose. Um, so we know that rates of trust in politicians and in government have been declining. And I think it contributes to the sense that if a politician changes their mind on something, well, can you trust them? Did they really believe what they said they did before they changed their mind? Do they really believe what they say they do now? And, and I think that's sort of what it plays into. I'm curious. I, I checked, obviously, your um, what you've written, but have you ever been tempted to write something positively about someone who's changed their mind and updated things? I'm trying to think if I, I, I have actually written something about this. I mean, I think one brilliant example of someone changing their mind and it being received really positively was the politician Nas Shah. So she's a Labour MP who posted on her Facebook wall um, something, uh, basically shared somebody else's anti-Semitic Facebook post. And so she got into trouble with that. She There was an investigation by the Labour Party. She was uh, suspended. But she sought an opportunity to kind of re-educate herself about um, anti-Semitism. She completely acknowledged that the post that she had shared had been wrong and anti-Semitic and racist. And she, after that, uh, did a lot of work with the Jewish community in her constituency and nationally um, and spoke quite a lot in public about what she got wrong and why. And as a result, I think she's really widely respected for the sort of approach she's taken to it. She's very well liked now by the you know, Jewish community um, in Britain. And I think it's a really good example of a politician getting something right when something that they've done is quite obviously wrong. But rather than doubling down, she not only gave an apology, she kind of went above and beyond an apology, really. She, she sought to kind of attempt to make up for what she'd done wrong with a lot of success. And so I think that's a, you know, I definitely write about that, for example. In fact, I think I, I'm pretty sure I have mentioned it in one of my columns. Do you think people are more forgiving in that sense? scenario because of the level of work she put in afterwards they are more forgiving I think I think voters can sort of see when somebody is being authentic and when they're genuinely they genuinely think they were wrong about something and um they seek to make up for it and she did put a lot of effort in I have to say though I think that's quite rare in politics you don't see that kind of behavior a lot actually you know one of the examples that you mentioned Alex was was Nick Clegg changing his mind on tuition fees you know, I, I completely understand where voters are coming from on that. It was a really big pledge going into the 2010 election for the Lib Dems. And the Lib Dems, you know, is why some people say they voted for the Lib Dems. And then the Lib Dems dropped it as they went into coalition with David Cameron. I personally don't think it was a great look because when politicians can demonstrate with some authenticity why they've changed their minds, what new thing they've learned, what new experiences that they've had. I think the public much more sympathetic to understanding why someone has changed their mind than if it looks electorally convenient or politically convenient. And I think that's why the Lib Dems have suffered so much as a result of dropping that pledge, because it either looked like they believed in it was politically convenient to enter the coalition, or it looks like they didn't really believe in it, but they adopted it because they thought it was a good way to win student votes and then dropped it because they didn't believe in it when they went into coalition. So I don't think Nick Clegg ever authentically explained did a massive U-turn on that issue. Yep, yep. So this reminds me of another guest, um, Steve Martin, who we had on uh, the show a few months ago. Steve is a behavioural scientist 
who was talking about his research in his recent book, Messengers, uh, on on Boris and Trump and how they are both perceived as trustworthy, but not necessarily truthful. Uh, and I remember thinking at first glance, you think, what? How can people be perceived as both trustworthy but not truthful? And Steve explained it's because although both change their mind and flip-flop a lot, so they make small transgressions, they change, they make, uh, they lie, but their fundamental principles remain broadly the same. And because they remain broadly the same, their larger values and their principles, this explains why they can be both trustworthy, but also not necessarily truthful. Yeah, although it's interesting, isn't it? So for example, someone like Boris Johnson, maybe because he's been consistent, say, in the last two years in what he says he wants around Brexit, you know, perhaps that gives him some level of consistency on the big stuff with voters. But I think he's done some huge chopping and changing. I mean, he famously had two columns ready to go. He wrote two columns, one for staying in the EU, one um, against staying in the EU, as he was trying to decide which one he, you know, which position he was going to take in the referendum. So perhaps Boris Johnson has got there more recently. But I think if you take the long view of the last kind of five to 10 years of Boris Johnson, does he doesn't really appear to believe in anything. Sonia, what role do you think the media has to play in this debate? Which has got a really important role to play. Um, I think in terms of, a, you know, the, the media sort of, well, first of all, the media, you know, publishes the news. And um, I think, you know, really robust for reporting is really important in kind of combating the kind of fake news climate that we see. And uh, reporting sort of the breadth of what's going on in the country in a sort of free and fair way. A lot of media outlets in the UK, you know, particularly newspapers, also publish as well as reporting a lot of um, opinion journalism. I think that the way that papers like where I work, The Guardian and The Observer, can really help to encourage kind of a more respectful tone of debate is by publishing a diversity of views on our, our comment pages. And that's something that we we try to do, like the Guardian, the Observer, Observer, obviously are kind of like of the centre left, but we try and publish a diversity of views um, within that. And I think that's helped because I think, you, you, you know, you're trying to expose, expose your readers to a range of views. You know, I think I always think, you know, there are different types of columns that serve different sorts of purposes. But as a reader reading the comment pages of a newspaper, you sometimes want to be reading the columns that, you know, that you really identify with, um, that share your perspective, but kind of almost put it better than you could yourself um, and, you know, reassure you why you think the way you do. But as a reader of comment pages, I think you also want to be reading columns that really challenge you and make you think about things in new ways or make you think about the different perspectives that people are coming from and make you see actually there might be something in that as well. So I think, a newspaper is at its best when it it takes readers it publishes some of the sort of columns that readers really identify with and you know really it, columns that really chime with their own views but also um sort of takes its read their comfort zone um and i think that's when comment journalism is at its best and just to follow up on that have you got any examples where you think someone's written something that you wouldn't expect your readers to agree with. And then actually it's really caused them to pause and reflect rather than inducing outrage, which is the, the typical response. 
So one example I can give him is not exactly an example of that, but I'm just thinking about my own work and my own writing. So one of the more controversial positions that we've taken at The Observer, this was about kind of two, three years ago, it was around the junior doctor strike. And when I, you know, I write editorials for The Observer, when I started off kind of writing a leader on the junior doctor strike that week, I kind of assumed that we would take the broadly left position, which is to be broadly sympathetic of junior doctors. And it was only when I did quite a lot of research and looked into um, what was going on with the strike and the way it had developed and um, the way that the government offer to junior doctors had developed that I sort of realised that there was probably a bit more to it. So we wrote a couple of really challenging editorials, actually, for our audience that basically expressed a view, well, the government haven't handled this very well, but actually the junior doctors aren't doing the right thing by going on, on strike and withholding emergency care either, because a lot of their concerns pertain to the broader funding levels in the NHS and going on a contractual strike doesn't really help that. Actually, when you look at the details, of the, they're not as bad as the BMA were making out. So that was quite challenging, I think. And actually, one of the reasons it was challenging was because it did get quite a negative response, particularly from some of our readers who worked in the NHS on social media, for example. So it, it wasn't a universally positive response. But I think people aren't used to be take, being taken out of their comfort zone and being hit with something by a columnist or a newspaper that they're not really expecting to hear. So I think that can still feel quite uncomfortable for people. And was it quite uncomfortable to write something that had that response from readers who might normally be more directly aligned with the paper's position? It didn't feel uncomfortable writing it because my view about a paper's editorial is it's got to be in line with the paper's values and you've just got to kind of decide what you think is right in-house and then you know write what you think is right so writing it felt really good actually because it was like you know this is this is actually a very observer take on the world mm. and it feels really important to be sharing it in a climate where if people on the left were sort of thinking something different it's difficult was I also wrote a couple of columns personally sort of very critical feedback that was actually quite it didn't really engage some of it didn't engage with the substance of the piece some of it was just quite personal and um in its, its sort of negativity mm. and that that's always tough but you just kind of to be honest it's kind of part of the territory of being a comment journalist. One of the statistics we cite frequently on the show is that um, 80% plus of the public in the UK think their country is divided. I think it's a, it's a pretty similar story in the US. Would you say the same for the uh, UK elite? So business, journalists, uh, academia, the kind of commentariat, etc.? I'm surprised to hear that statistic of 85% in the UK. I'm less surprised in relation to the US because I think the US is generally more polarised um, than the UK. I think it's got a history of polarisation. I think there are culture wars around issues like guns and abortion in the US in a way that just doesn't translate to the UK context, actually. So I'm genuinely surprised that 85% of people in Britain think that the country is divided. I actually think that, um, that the elite, as you term it, but as in Westminster, um, the media are far more polarised in the country at large, actually. And it's really interesting that when you look at um, things like citizens' assemblies, so whether, for example, that's a citizens' assembly um, that happened in Ireland around abortion, there was a Brexit citizens' assembly here that was run by the UCL Constitution Union back in 2017, to so the year after the Brexit referendum. Like When you get normal people in a room, I think they're 
generally quite reasonable uh, they're able to reach pragmatic compromise they're able to listen to each other uh, respectfully if it's set up in the right way I think probably far more so that when you put two political pundits in a room or two politicians at the moment who come from opposing sides of the debate so if anything I would say that what you see in Westminster and what you see in our media isn't really reflective of the country as a whole. And um, I think if you were to believe that Westminster was representative of the country, and maybe this is where some of it comes from, people saying this in polls, if, if, if you think that Westminster is representative of the country, then yeah, absolutely, we're, we're dreadfully polarised as a country. I'm not so sure, actually. I, I, don't, I don't think people, you know, like spend their nights in the pub talking about Brexit and taking opposing views on Brexit. Uh, I just, yeah, I, I, I'm really sceptical of that. If Westminster is more divided than the general public, why would you say that is? Because, well, I think in Westminster, I think you've seen both political parties um, move to uh, more of the fringes of their territory. So I think you've seen the Labour Party move to the left. You've seen the Conservative Party move to the right. Um, I think the Labour leadership at the moment is um, much more ideological than it's ever been. I think when you look at the Conservative Party, you see the ideological right of the Conservative Party, the Eurosceptic part of the Conservative Party has really become totally dominant. If you look at the way that Theresa May's Brexit policy and Boris Johnson's Brexit policy has developed, it's been developed for the hard right of the Conservative Party. So I just think that Brexit has really hardened politicians' views on, on both sides of the debate and it's led to this sort of I I think there's there's quite a toxic culture in Westminster at the moment and you know I think both parties moving to their sort of extremes is, is part of that. So Sonia I've got a question for you which is the same question we ask every guest who comes on the show which is to tell us a time about they changed their mind and why and I know you've got a really good one. Oh, that's very nice of you to say so. So I suppose one of the policy issues, I'm a policy wonk by trade, working in think tanks um, and doing policy work in kind of frontline politics before becoming a journalist. So the really big policy um, thing that I've changed my mind on is tuition fees. So uh, when I went to uh, university many years ago, now when I was an undergraduate, I was really involved in the campaign to, um, you know, back then tuition fees were £1,000. The government, the Labour government at the time wanted to increase it them to three thousand pounds a year which probably sounds quite cheap to people at university at the moment or in but, america um, yeah yeah or in america exactly but i was part of the student campaign and i was very involved in my student union and stopped the government increasing tuition fees from a thousand pounds a year to three thousand pounds a year and indeed you know i wrote policy papers for my student union as submissions to government um, that argued that higher education should be free um, to everyone who wanted to go And then it was kind of like a few years later, I suppose, kind of like maybe five or six years later when I was working um, in think tanks. I was looking at education policy from a kind of much broader perspective, I suppose. I became a trustee of a youth charity that sends young people to volunteer for a year in schools in um, disadvantaged areas. And the young people who take part are young people who go to university, young people who don't go to university. And um, I began to see that actually the young people who go to university, the cohort, they're disproportionately from better off backgrounds. They get a huge amount of state investment into their education, even in in the current system of £9,000 fees. The state is still subsidising their education to the tune of like 20, uh, just over £20,000 over a three year course. That's a huge amount of investment. And to actually increase that investment even further while doing nothing for kids who don't go to university just seems to me to be so unfair. 
So I changed my mind essentially because I kind of broadened my perspective. When I went to university, you know, I was at a school where most people went on to higher education. And, you know, our concerns when I was at university, I was really involved with um, access widening schemes um, and, you know, schemes that went out to talk to schools from all across the country to young kids who might not otherwise think of applying to Oxford or Cambridge, why they should apply to Oxford or Cambridge. So, you know, we we were genuinely really concerned about the impact that tuition fees might have on access to higher education. Um, but I sort of realised there were loads of young people who don't go to university and actually the first priority for any education budget should be spending on their post-18 education, not kids who already get quite a good deal from the system. And um, I also there's, there's also been a huge amount of evidence since increased um, that actually they haven't been bad for access. That said, I don't like the current system of funding. I would scrap the, these fees of £9,000 a year and I would move to a graduate tax system. I think that actually people who go to higher education, they have a lot of investment in them and they should pay back more uh, through the tax system. Sonia, when you changed your mind, you said it was because you were looking at an issue through a wider lens and a different perspective. How did you get that perspective? Was it through experiencing uh or, or listening or interacting with different kinds of people tell us more it was a mixture actually and I think quite often it probably is going to be a mixture of stuff that changes your mind so there was a lot of evidence coming out about um the impact of fees on access back in kind of like the late 2000s and you just kind of have to pay attention to it really like it's indisputable so there was that but it, a lot of my broadening of perspective came from the fact that I was working in education policy I became a governor um probably not that long after starting my work in policy at a primary school in the state that you know takes kids from really wide range of backgrounds lots of kids from uh with English as a second language lots of children on free school meals so um, you know it was a very kind of diverse intake at that school and so you just you're thinking about a much broader range of children um and where they're going to end up when you're um a governor at kind of a school with a really mixed intake I suppose and also it was getting involved with the charity um that I got involved with City Year as a trustee and meeting a lot of the young people some of whom go to university some of whom didn't who volunteered with city year and kind of realizing that there is a world beyond university for young people and actually young people who don't go to university like there's little thought put into them from a policy perspective from a funding perspective and I just think that that's really wrong and that is the most urgent thing that needs fixing not a higher education funding system. And Sonia what do you think the 20 year old you would make of your position now? I like to think the 20 year old would look at, you know, me in my late 30s and say, wow, she's just got so much more wisdom and experience and it's a better, a better informed point of view. You would be an unusual. Well, I don't know. I don't think my 20 year old self would have been that generous. <laughs> I have to be honest. Yeah. I mean, maybe look, maybe she'd look at me and think I was a total sellout. But I just think it was my, you know, when you're 20, you just don't have the same diversity of perspective as you do when you're in your late 30s like I just didn't know as much about the world I was more naive and therefore my my views were more naive. I thought you made a really interesting point there about the failure to fund alternative routes as well so I know you write quite a lot about education more broadly what what's the one change you would make for people who don't go to university? Uh, Well the first change I would make is money because there's just so basically as I mentioned we spend um you know, just over twenty thousand pounds on average the government invests in 
undergraduates doing a three-year university course living away from home and many young people who don't go to university won't get any government investment in their education post-18. So I think for me funding, I mean there's a lot of policy change that can follow from the funding but funding has to be kind of like the number one thing you change because actually like there's absolutely you know be investing more money in young people who go to university than don't. My hunch would be actually it would be better to invest in kids who who um, graduate or who leave school with fewer qualifications and more because to be honest if you're leaving school without basic literacy and numeracy at age 18 like I think that £20,000 would be better spent on you personally so my hunch would be actually we should be we've got it entirely the wrong way around there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that we should be spending more on the most academically able kids and so it's just a massive social injustice that we're not spending the same amounts of money so I think if, a, you know, for example, if a really, truly progressive party, for example, if the Labour Party were to say we spend just over £20,000 on average per kid who goes to university, we're going to spend exactly the same on all young people. It doesn't matter what route you, you take. I think that would send a hugely important, important signal and it would also open up a massive funding stream for alternative routes. Sonia, I'm just... Wondering, having been through that process of changing your mind on tuition fees, do you think it's made it easier for you to think about updating your position on other issues as well? Yeah, I do and I don't. So um, I'm quite sort of, I suppose I'm quite proud that I changed my mind on tuition fees. And um, like, I'm proud that I was able to see the error of my earlier ways, I suppose. And, you know, it's always been something that I've been quite open about and happy to speak to people about. And I think it does make it easier, you know, to to change your mind on something else when you know that there's something big that you have changed your mind on. And it's easier to sort of remember that you should be open to it. But there's just, well, first of all, there's just so much that prevents you from changing your mind on things. And, you know, I experience this and I think social media makes it a lot worse, actually. Like once you sort of set your view out and you've set it out publicly, whether it's in a you know series of tweets or in a column in a newspaper, like I you know I'm much more open to hearing alternative perspectives to perspectives before I sort of make my view public than after I'm just aware of that I think it's a very human trait and you have to work really hard not to be defensive when you've written a column and put your uh, opinion out there and the the natural instinct when someone sort of challenges you is to double down and defend it no matter what they're saying rather than to sort of take a step back and say well actually have they got something have they got a point here? And, um, I, you know, I would like to do more acknowledging when someone's got a point. You have to work quite hard to do that, though. So that definitely mitigates against it. And then the other thing I would say is that because I, I think the debate has got a lot more polarised, I think it's partly because of what's going on in our political context. So it's partly as a result of Brexit and what's happening with our political parties. But I also think it's uh, social media makes it worse think a platform like Twitter I use Twitter you know Twitter is a social media platform that I use the most um I use it a lot for work Twitter there is something about the culture of Twitter of stating your view briefly quite brusquely sometimes in a way that you hope might generate lots of retweets or likes or whatever um that makes the debate I think far more combative than it would ever be offline if you were having a conversation with someone so um yeah I think changing your mind on something big once does make you more open to it but I think there's a lot in human psychology in the way we conduct debate today um 
in the sort of polarization of the current context that 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 really pulls again as someone who often takes part in debates i was interested in your view on whether the whole sort of construct of how those things happen might need to change so that people don't have to take such extreme positions and then stick with them because it strikes me that the whole format of a lot of the media we consume pushes you to those extremes anyway what's your view on that yeah I think that's completely right actually and it's quite hard to you know as somebody who sort of takes part in some of these debates like on question time or whatever or on um, news night or on, on like other shows often you feel you know you're sort of put up with somebody who takes the opposing view to you and you have an argument on screen and sometimes it can be illuminating and like particularly particularly great presenter like I really rate Emily Maitlis and Emma Barnett at Newsnight for example I think they're really great at drawing out insights and not necessarily just setting up a debate to be two contrary positions where you basically just get people you know in effect just opposing each other um but I do think in in general the tendency to contrarian positions and um illuminating for people like you don't learn that much from people who take two really polar opposite views having a fight on TV, for example. So I do think that needs to change. And I think that's partly about, you know, format. Um, uh, It's partly about presenter style, for example. And it's partly about, um, you know, the way you think about, so broadcasters obviously have to think about quite carefully. And, you know, BC comes in for a lot of undeserved flack, I think. Like, I'm, you know, a big supporter of the BBC, and I think, you know, some of their programming is just phenomenal. But I do think there's a bit, you know, there, there is a bit of an issue with the way that the BBC has kind of approached neutrality um, around Brexit and after Brexit, where, you know, similarly to the critique it's attracted around climate change. I read your piece the other day about um, delaying the menopause and why that begets such a polarised response, which I find fascinating because, you know, it could help out, especially for women, on so many different levels. Do you think it's just sexism that begets that response, or do you think there's more going on there? Um, That's a good question. I mean, I think it is sexism, but what what you mean by sexism is interesting. So I think... um, I mean, I was genuinely really excited when I read that treatment and when I took a step back. I mean, in some ways, it didn't surprise me how negatively it was received. But then on another level, it is really surprising and shocking because all this is is a medical advance that might help women, right, who A, suffer early menopause and B, you know, it might help women with fertility issues one day as well. So, I mean, to me, that's just like two big ticks. Amazing. Like, you know, it's like, the you know, a breakthrough in treating um, Alzheimer's. Like, why why isn't it a good thing? Um, but, I, I, you know, the reason it didn't surprise me, I suppose, is I just think there's so much um, sexism, first of all, around, I think people recoil at the idea of, you know, extending female fertility, which I think is really problematic when we're living longer, um, you know, when people settle down later, have children later, um, there is this fertility gap between men and women. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's problematic for people to have a problem with the idea of extending female fertility. But I think there is a real 
sort of recoil that people have from that a real sort of disgust I suppose I think people like genuinely don't care about um you know there are people who genuinely don't care about the fact that some women have incredibly um dreadful menopauses and the extent that delaying it could really help them um I was also surprised that actually because it wasn't you know it was it was some women who had a negative response as well and I think this is interesting so I think it's where it's something which exposes the tensions within feminism because I think some women who've already had their menopause and found it okay or found that HRT was okay for them just saw this as, as medicine trying to take away sort of nature from women's bodies. And um, I think it's a real shame that they saw it like that because not every woman can take HRT and not HRT doesn't work for every woman. So in my book, if there's something that can make menopause better for women, um, and if it does involve taking some ovarian tissue from when they're younger, like that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But I think some women sort of see it as men, male scientists trying to sort of rework women's bodies to their advantage, not to women's advantage. But I didn't see that at all. No, I wouldn't. It's really interesting that I wouldn't have thought of it in that way either. I mean, it's a perfectly valid point, but it does feel slightly abstract and weird. But I guess it's based on everybody's personal experience too that's the thing you know your fertility and your own body is something you can feel quite strongly about but not realize that your experience is atypical and or even if it had been atypical just want to protect others yeah and I think um what's really problematic actually is when feminism sort of you know takes it takes kind of like you know feminists are like oh there's one view one feminist view on this subject and everyone should sign up to it um so I think that's difficult and I think you know there are lots of really morally complex issues like egg freezing for example and you know I wrote a column about the fact that um it was a few years ago when Facebook and Google in Silicon Valley first started offering oh, egg freezing yeah, as a female. It's really common. Loads of my friends have done it out here. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, you know, I sort of look at that policy and think, yeah, great. If women want it, they can take it up. But, uh, you know, I have a problem with... Um, I actually think there's a a sexism at the heart of some types of feminist thinking where feminists are like, oh, no, you can't like offer this to women. It's just bribing them to have their children later. It's corporates leaning on women. Well, for some women, maybe it will work like that, actually. But for some women, it might be an amazing boon. Like, you know, they might be putting off having children anyway. They know the risks. They know that with egg freezing, the chances of success are much lower than with conventional IVF. They take an educated, informed decision to do it anyway. And the fact that their employer is offering it to them is a boon. So I just think the idea that one woman, that, that a policy is going to impact all women in the same way is quite sexist in of itself. And there are some aspects of feminist thinking that really um, remove agency from women because I'm sorry, but it's kind of sexist to say, oh, it's just dreadful for employers to offer this to women because um, they'll just feel like they're obliged to have their children later and it'll put loads of pressure on them to put off like childbearing. Like that's sexist to me because, you know, not all women, it won't, it might have that effect on some women, but it won't on others. Yeah, it is particularly. It's particularly interesting, although not with the companies that you mentioned, when they do it without offering any decent maternity leave or paternity leave. Oh, absolutely. Like, <laughs> I find no, that an interesting absolutely. view to reconcile. That's intriguing, isn't it? <laughs> I yeah. know, I know. Well, going back to the media, is there anything that could be uh, done to move or change the situation more positively? Well, I think um, a show, and I think Radio 4 do do something quite similar to this, actually, but I think a show where you get people to come you know people with opposing opinions to come along and explain in good faith their perspective and um hear about somebody else talk about 
fair perspective and good faith and do it in a way that's genuinely about trying to um, change someone's mind rather than shout from a pulpit about you know why they're right and you know you you sort of say to them by the end of the show we kind of want you to acknowledge one thing that you think the other person might have right that you might have got wrong you know at least or, or you know at least talk about the thing that you think is most likely uh, that you or you, you, that you would find most like you to the other person I think that would lead to you know certainly within that kind of debate like a, a, a very different sort of style of talking to each other I think you you, you can incentivize it but because it, it goes against the grain I think of who we are as human beings um like it's quite difficult for us to back down and change our mind it's not really I think something that to us work quite hard to change the incentives around it to make it easier for people to do that because if you don't I think the default will always be never to back down on anything at all. So I really agree with your previous comment about the role of social media uh, and the role it plays in worsening polarisation so it's permanent and as you were just saying you know people have a 100% desire to be consistent um, and do not like to think or admit that they have changed their mind so thinking about how we communicate to each other on social media, how can we how can we engage in conversational discourse with the other side without demonising the other side to get the necessary likes, retweets, etc. that you mentioned? Well, I think um, I think something probably the structure of the social media platforms has to change. I think the way that social media is set up and the way that Facebook and Twitter sort of you know, make money from advertising is by getting people to engage with the platform in a particular way. And they do really well out of polarised debate. So, um, like, but I think you could stru- you could structure them really differently. So to incentivise a different kind of conversation, for example, on Twitter, you could just actually, I mean, just take away retweets and likes, for example, and you might get something completely different. Like I've definitely noticed in the last two years on Twitter like the number of um, tweets that go sort of viral, like they get thousands of likes or retweets on my feed has gone up. And I think it's because people have got better at knowing how to get something, a few thousand retweets or likes. And you can literally see the people, I won't name them, but you can see the people who literally just tweet to go viral and get likes. And I don't, they're boring. Like they're really boring. They just say really predictable things, really quite polarising things in quite an aggressive way and um, do well out of it, uh, well, well in inverted commas, but I actually think they're adding very little to the, the conversation or the debate. So I think you can you can change things structurally. I think you also probably need to start uh, children and, you know, children are going to be growing up in a world where social media is, is just kind of really dominant and just there. And um, I've written about um, a thing in Ireland uh, called Cyber Smarties, which is this, um, it's basically like a closed social network for primary school children that they can join through their primary school uh, schools. And the guy who set it up, it sort of described it as kind of like training, um, training wheels for like um, stabiliser wheels rather uh, for like, you know, grown up social media. Um, it's basically like a, a closed social uh, media platform for primary school kids that is kind of set up to um, promote positive and so it does things like you know all your friends will write a really nice comment about this database and then being a bit low you can click on something saying I'm feeling a bit low or you know whatever it is it's a different form of words and you get like a few nice messages from your friends like pop up telling how wonderful you are um, 
there's moderators who follow the conversations between kids and you know if you're gonna if you're a kid about to say something quite nasty to another kid a little flag will come up saying you know we don't want you to send that message because it's going to make you know Annie feel quite miserable and how would you feel if someone sent this to you again it's not quite um you know not using those form of words but that's the principle of it and um I think that's kind of I think if, if a platform like Facebook really cared about how people used it it would also be investing in things like that and what's interesting Sonia you might know this but Facebook are experimenting with removing the like button in Australia and a few other territories and have an in-house oh really yeah, yeah and... I, I heard something vaguely about that and I think it's a really good idea yeah it is and it's it like I think it might roll out like I think it's really it's easier to think of there being a baddie when we're talking about polarization and Facebook's name comes up quite a lot but my my personal view is that you know they're certainly part of the problem but they're not they're not the only reason and we certainly won't solve mm-hmm. it just by getting Facebook um, on board. Mm. Um, Sonia thank you so much. Yeah thank you so much. Bye Sonia. It's a pleasure really nice to chat to you all. Bye. Bye. Oh it's fantastic to hear from Sonia it's been quite a long time since Uh, The three of us worked with her, but she's lost none of her sharpness in the intervening years. I thought it was particularly interesting now that she works within the media to hear her views on how different forms of media shape the way that we talk and discuss and therefore how polarised our views become. What did you think, ladies? Well, I think I think in some ways that she's she's really onto something, but it it does reveal at at its heart a real challenge for the press in that if they want to produce pithy, engaging copy that in effect brings them revenue, then it's almost inherently polarizing. And how do you possibly get around that? I I don't have an an easy way. I know that there's a a few outlets, Open Democracy, of course, who we work with among them who try and encourage people to think more slowly and to process that way. But it's relentlessly tough given how people think with their system one and system two thinking approach which I suspect Alex might take as a cue to jump in and explain slightly to our listeners yeah so yeah so system one system two is a Nobel Prize winner at Kahneman's theory of how uh, we make decisions so system one is very fast very intuitive very emotional whereas system two is much slower so if I was to ask you for example what 64 at 76 is you'd probably be using system two whereas if I asked you to use system what if so I ask you two or two that's more like system one uh so yeah I think the media does oh, sorry especially like social media does play into that system one so people react very very quickly very emotionally very intuitively whereas actually maybe we need to be slowing people's thinking down so they they are more thoughtful and um deliberative but it's hard because I think your point Ali was exactly spot on in, in that it pays there's incentives to be uh, very polarizing and and cause moral outrage because that's what get likes, that's what gets shares, that's, that's what gets the retweets. So it's kind of a case of a classic case of misaligned incentives. And also, you get different media that exist specifically to do those things, don't you? So I was I was thinking while you were talking, Alex. You know, you've got the the well thought through plan behind tortoise media, for example, which is space for longer, more thought through discussions. Um, but a lot of people won't read that. Where, but a lot of people will click on something very um, extreme or um, emotive that's popped up by a pundit on Twitter, which is really kind of set to get their, you know, blood boiling. And I thought that when Sonia was talking about the difference when you're head to head with someone, you know, on the TV trying to land your point and essentially trying to get to that sort of winner takes all point in a debate compared to when you're writing an opinion piece or, or something more. Um, 
contemplative. It's quite a the form of media matters there, I think. And then you have yeah, and then you have um, examples of algorithms, which you can understand why they do it. But for example, on YouTube, where you watch a particular type of content, the algorithm will then generate a more extreme version of that content um, automatically. So the kind of you don't, you don't even have to take any action; it will automatically default to watch you. Sorry, to make you watch something more extreme, which is scary. I think exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. It's quite, and I know that the platforms are quite concerned about it. And what this discussion really makes me think is we should get somebody. There's there's a few people who spring to mind who can talk particularly about this topic more in depth mm. with us because I, I suspect our listeners would do it, and and it would be really good to grill them on views that they think might have been influenced and changed by those platforms as a consequence yeah absolutely and I think also you know connecting to the core of um, polarization and changing your mind why it is having said things in certain media or in certain ways also holds you to maintaining an opinion that you actually might be quite prepared to let go of but you sort of feel like you can't because you've created such a strong reaction from taking that stance in the first place you know whether that connects to you know, the people who genuinely do sort of say sorry and change their mind or, or not. Yes, it's a permanent imprint on the world. Yeah, and I thought of that, actually that's one of the things that was another thing just struck me about the, the Sonia conversation with the Nashar example, because um, I thought you, you, you know, quite um, rightly pointed out, Ali, that, that, that there was an outcry as well as an apology. And, you know, what's the balance between those things and the sort of laudable realizing that you've been wrong and you need to um account for that if you like uh versus the you know would you have done that if no one had noticed you know it's quite an interesting quite an interesting um challenge that isn't it and and even and I think we should totally approach Naz Shah and potentially someone from the um, board of deputies or something which is the one of the Jewish of overseeing bodies to come on actually with her and talk about the process that they went through. But also mm. if there is an outrage, does it make it even harder for you to change your mind? Because it raises the stakes and encourages you to to dig in. Yeah. You know? And it, it would be I think we should absolutely explore that with her and with with other guests. And we'd love to hear from listeners as well, actually, about times that that they changed their their mind on it, on things and and how much outrage may have encouraged or stymied that. Absolutely. So I think it sounds like we're all agreed Sonia was a really uh, helpful and thought-provoking guest for us and will certainly lead on to a whole range of other areas of discussion. I actually should say with Sonia's podcast in particular, I felt like there were so many different routes we could have gone off and gone down to talk about it. But uh, I think given that she is so prevalent in the media, it's a really interesting, interesting part of the discussion to explore. So I should probably wrap up by saying thank you, Sonia. Uh, thanks so much for listening to another episode of Change My Mind. Um, we're really grateful that Open Democracy share this with their many, many millions of listeners. We always love to hear feedback and encourage people who like the show to rate the podcast. If you didn't like it, maybe just send us some feedback and don't rate it. Um, we'd like to thank Caroline Crampton, our wonderful producer who makes us better every single episode, and also Kevin McLeod for the theme music that you hear that brings us in and takes us out.